Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Sean Applegate. Of course, he is a 10th Planet Black Belt out of 10th Planet Atlanta. Really appreciate Sean joining me for the episode today. We are really promoting the upcoming seminar, which will be Saturday, January 7th from 12 o'clock noon until 3 p.m. at 10th Planet Louisville which is, of course, uh, Beulah Church Road, A.J. Jenkins, and um, Holly Jenkins. Everybody there at 10th Planet Louisville, great people. Brennan Bishop, of course, the Fergusons, you know, great family there. And as you hear in the episode today, of course, uh, Jason really <laughs> says they're going to have, I guess, like 15 to 18 additional people, competitors coming in who will be there for the seminar also. So should be a big uh, weekend for 10th Planet Louisville. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Sean Applegate. Sean is a 10th Planet Black Belt, of course, out of 10th Planet Atlanta. Sean has an upcoming seminar in Louisville, Kentucky, of course, at 10th Planet Louisville or Louisville Combat Academy with A.J. Jenkins. That will be Saturday, January 7th from 12 p.m. until 3 p.m. Sean, I really appreciate you joining me today. How are you? Doing great, man. How are you? Doing very well. I, I really um, am looking forward to the upcoming seminar, and I know everybody in Louisville is also. Um, Sean, I know you, you've got a background for many years. Of course, you've trained under Eddie Bravo and, of course, Brandon McGaffron. Um, in recent years, you have spent uh, your time at 10th Planet Atlanta, correct? You've been there about four years. Is that right? Yes, sir. 
Okay. And, and you've been coming to Louisville, I believe, for years. I assume uh, in the world of 10th Planet, you know, Scott Elliott, A.J. Jenkins, I, I assume that's kind of a, a, a very well-known uh, region for the 10th Planet world, correct? Yeah, I, uh, I've known A.J. for a number of years. He came down when I was in Gulf Shores, and I was uh, actually a blue belt, uh, you know, teaching at this MMA school. And uh, he came down and just dropped in. He was on vacation and was like, hey, man, I want to get some training in while I'm in town. Do you mind if I come by? And I, being a blue belt, you know, I was like, yeah, man, a purple belt guy is going to come by. It's going to be great. We can get some rolling. And we rolled. And uh, after we rolled, he came back the next day and I was kind of just like, oh, you're back. Like, I thought you were on vacation. Like, you're training every day. He's like, yeah, man, I had to come back. And long story short, he came every day for like a week. He came and trained with me. And then when he left, he was like, bro, I have to figure out what's going on with this 10th planet stuff. Like, um, I guess the roles left an impression on him. So he was like, yeah, I'm going to, I got to figure out what's going on. So he wanted to become a part of 10th planet. So he starts, you know, going down this road to be uh, an affiliate of 10th planet. And so because he did that, we were always uh, talking. He was coming down to visit. I was going up. Uh, if I had to travel and I was driving through Louisville, I would stop and see him and stay with him uh, for a night and just hang out with him, spend some time with him. Um, so I've known AJ for a very long time, uh, probably close to 10 years. And uh, Scott, I, I only know Scott through 10th Planet, but I've been around him quite a bit in the last handful of years. And uh, we've taught at camps together or seen him at different seminars and things of that nature. Um, so yeah, I actually got my brown belt at Louisville Combat Academy, Eddie, uh, AJ had set up a seminar and Eddie came and taught the seminar. So of course we all showed up because it was Eddie on this side of the country. And, um, Eddie actually gave me my brown belt at Louisville Combat Academy, uh, quite a few years before it became 10th Planet Louisville. Very cool. I, I didn't know that's where you received your, your brown belt. Pretty cool. Um, what would you say your description of 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu is? And is there possibly any misconceptions about 10th Planet or the affiliation as a whole? Um, assuming someone listening maybe trains at a, maybe a gi Jiu-Jitsu school, something like that. What is 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think most of the time what... I hear people say when they say like, uh, you know, oh, 10th planet, you know, and then they're sort of their idea of it. Most people think that 10th planet is just Eddie's game. It's uh, a set of moves, you know, involving a bunch of techniques that Eddie developed or um, spent time innovating. When in reality, uh, it's really just everything that works Nogi. We are basically just trying to evolve Nogi. That's it. That's all we really care about. You don't really care about uh, like necessarily rubber guard or any of the things that people think. Like, you know, we have a lot of rubber guard players and Eddie plays a ton of rubber guard. Eddie loves rubber guard. Um, but really it's about what works no gi. So if something works no gi, we do it. You know, people were like, oh, it's in Planet Guys in recent years. All oh, these guys are a bunch of leg lockers. Why? Because leg locks are important. They're very uh, real. They're very viable. You have to use them in the no gi meta or or you don't have success and the reason we did a lot of leg locks because they work so 10th planet the doctrine of 10th planet is not rubber guard and lockdown and whatever it is that people who've never trained at 10th planet think it is it's actually whatever works no gi and whatever evolutions we and or innovations we can bring to the game that's 10th planet so you know if uh rubber guard is 10th planet then so is 
Ashigurami and if Ashigurami is 10th planet, then so is the mount. And if you see what I'm saying, it's it's no gi jujitsu designed for no gi, not gi jujitsu designed for no gi. There can be uh, emphasis on, you know, just traditional uh, maybe pressure passing to, to pass someone's guard in 10th planet. It doesn't have to be fancy shit. Uh, correct. Well, I mean, pressure passing is fancy, right? Pressure passing is fancy. Is so, it? Interesting. Okay. Absolutely. Like, uh, I think that any viable jujitsu, any jujitsu that's worth doing has a certain level of intricacy to it. If it doesn't have that intricacy to it, then it's probably not going to hold up uh, once people start developing hard counters to it. Um, I think that in jujitsu, we have a, a weird culture of uh, always trying to do the thing that someone hasn't seen. And I think that that comes from our basic feeling when we start jujitsu and haven't seen jujitsu before and we get beat up and we're like what is this crazy stuff that these guys are doing to me i feel like once i understand it maybe i'll be able to do a little better and i won't get beat up the same way so we're always chasing that dragon like oh i got this new sweep my teammates haven't seen it's gonna mess them all up when in reality there's more validity to messing them up with the same sweep they've seen a thousand times than messing them up with the sweep they've never seen one time if that makes any sense so i think pressure passing is an incredible, incredible way to pass the guard and has a lot of intricacy to it, especially when we talk principles of weight distribution and things of that nature. So uh, I think when we refer in jiu-jitsu oftentimes to fancy moves, we're just talking about probably moves that don't work, <laughs> like <laughs> like diving back takes and things that just, oh, I don't do all that crazy spinning stuff, I just do this. Well, what, that just this thing is probably better jiu-jitsu than whatever that crazy spinning thing is that we were talking about before anyway. You know what I mean? That makes sense. And, and I think what you're describing is there, there's a very fine line because I've heard you speak previously about this type of topic and you have said, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, but, but uh, sometimes if you hear someone emphasizing heavily that you got to just stick to just the basics for jujitsu, okay? in a way that could maybe be dumbing it down and that you, you should not be looking just to the basics, that there's more to jujitsu than just that. But at the same time, what you just described is, in effect, kind of an argument for that. Does that make sense? So I think what you're uh, uh, describing is kind of a, there's kind of a fine line there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just think, yeah, I think in jiu-jitsu, there's jiu-jitsu that's very valid and real and based on solid principles and concepts. And then there's jiu-jitsu that can happen once if the perfect scenario arises. I think the saying anything can work at the right time is very, very true. We're just playing a game of percentages. If that one thing that happens in order for this move to work is something that's going to happen at point oh 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 one percent of the time when you're in a grappling scenario then it's probably not worth spending weeks on in training it whereas take a mount escape that's high percentage like the neobo mount escape which is a very basic mount escape that anyone above blue belt should probably be pretty proficient at jujitsu the neobo mount escape is going to work because how often do you find yourself in the mount if i said Here's this wild spinning back take counter to a very specific leg entanglement whenever they have their left arm on your hip and their head is on the wrong side, then you'd say, damn, I don't know if I've ever been there before, <laughs> you know, like, and it, that's the only place it works. So it's probably not worth training. So we just play a game of percentages, everything in jujitsu that anything can work at the right time. But what we're trying to do is find the things that are going to help us the majority of the time. You know what I mean? And so I think that oftentimes is how we weed through and find the things that are worth training and not worth training. 
How many days a week do you work at, at 10th Planet Atlanta? Uh, six days, most weeks. I, I That's kind of a fib, though, because uh, I travel almost every weekend, whether it be to teach a seminar or corner the guys at their tournaments and things of that nature. So uh, it's supposed to be six days. It's supposed to be Monday through Saturday, but uh, oftentimes it's more Monday through Friday. How, how would you describe the atmosphere of 10th Planet Atlanta? Is it uh, a heavily jujitsu focused gym, obviously, but is there anything else? Or any an MMA uh, portion to the gym? Or how would you describe 10th Planet Atlanta? I've never been there. So, yeah. So, our, our gym, 10th Planet Atlanta, is inside of a gym called Striker Fight Center. Uh, and, and I use that term inside loosely because we have two different uh units in this complex and the jujitsu stuff has this ent- an entire unit to itself but um we're inside of another gym that offers a ton of programs they have mma muay thai boxing kung fu kali um just an insane amount of different programs there so in at 10th planet atlanta technically all we do is jujitsu but um within the school striker fight center we do basically anything you can think of Okay. And your long-term goals within jiu-jitsu, I've heard you speak about uh, you want to, of course, positively change and impact the art, I guess, of jiu-jitsu. Would that be mostly toward competitors or is there much of an emphasis within your jiu-jitsu program? I mean, is there many people in there who don't consistently compete, but I mean, jiu-jitsu is a big part of their life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Yes. So my goal long-term is to impact jujitsu as a whole. Like it has nothing to do with competition or not. Um, the jujitsu that you do absolutely should not be any different, whether you plan to compete or you don't like the, the methods of training should change for sure. Like if you're a hobbyist and you do jujitsu part-time or whatever, then of course you're not going to be in the gym twice a day. Like a lot of these full-time professional athletes are. But that's a training method. That's not your technique. That's not what you're doing in the gym to get better at jujitsu. So, yeah, we have guys that are obvious at the gym. We have guys that do not compete, and they're training right alongside the professionals doing the exact same techniques, using the same um, principles, concepts, mechanics, what have you. So my goal is to make an impact on jujitsu, to elevate jujitsu to a higher technical place than it is now because I think that when Eddie's started 10th planet and was like i'm not gonna wear the gi people freaked out they were like well that's not real jujitsu and no gi jujitsu is not as technical as gi jujitsu and and you're not going to be as good if you don't train in the gi and yada 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 all they weren't wrong they were absolutely right in that time that there were no solid places to gain real information on no gi jujitsu every school was just doing gi jujitsu without a gi on but now we have people who have only ever trained no gi. I have only ever trained no gi. And when someone comes in and they're learning an arm bar from the guard, for instance, they're never learning to fight at the gi distance. They're only learning to fight at the distance in no gi. They're only learning to deal with the variables of no gi. They don't have to think, well, how do I translate this grip and that grip? They're learning the body mechanic that makes that grip viable in the gi anyway. If anything, I find oftentimes that those people have an easier time going to the gi because they don't really have to think 
as much anymore. Like when you say, all right, just grab this grip here, it manipulates their shoulder. You don't have to learn why it manipulates their shoulder. You can literally just put your hand there, grab the gi and pull it. And it works exactly the same as the other guy that just showed it to you. Whereas a no gi, something as small as flaring your elbow in an underhook changes the entire position. It's not just an underhook anymore, which is why I think people look down on nogi for so long. Oh, it's far less technical. It's this, it's that, it's whatever. You can't do these things that you can do in the gi and nogi. You absolutely can. You absolutely can control somebody just as much nogi as you can in the gi. You just have to do it from a different distance. And that's one of the things that, since that's the wild west of jujitsu right now, since there's so little understanding of that and there's so little development of that in jujitsu right now, my goal is to push that further along and and leave jujitsu with some form of that, some piece of that, whatever I can leave it with whenever I'm out of there. Sean, you touched on something interesting there. You mentioned when Eddie created 10th Planet and, you know, some of the more traditional gi practitioners and instructors were, you know, maybe not not accepting of it, things like that. How would you describe the history of jujitsu? I know that's a, a big can of worms, but uh, from the United States perspective, for the most part, people were not familiar with it, of course, prior to 1993. And then it has slowly gained steam here since, even further back than that, of course, how did it get to Brazil and, and things like that. And, you know, there's a lot of different um, nuances to those types of stories. But in a nutshell, how would you describe uh, the history specifically of what we know as jiu-jitsu? Um, I would say, you know, jiu-jitsu, we started out in Japan. I mean, it's a Jap. I mean, it's just it's a Japanese name. I mean, it's very easy to see how that was a thing. But it was a samurai. Uh, you, you know, when you're fighting guys in armor, and you have these very like intricate small weapons like katanas and the variations of the katana that the Japanese use, they're not these big, bulky weapons like you see in like uh like uh European medieval times, like broadswords and things of that nature. They're not smashing through armor like if you uh, i don't know if you're a history buff or anything like that but like uh in europe a lot of weapons were built to just smash armor not not finesse their way around armor so like even like the axe like the traditional like viking axe uh they would just crush through people's helmets with them like they just didn't care and that was the design the japanese never approach anything like that the japanese are elitist they approach it and they go okay if we're gonna do this there's a lot of stuff we're not gonna do but if we do this thing we're gonna be absolutely the best ever at it so they figured out what swords were and they were like we're gonna make swords and the katana is still to this day the single most refined sword there is period it is the best most well-made sword in the world and they, they just, we're going to make swords, so we're going to be the best at it. And that's generally what they do. So fighting, they wore just like every other, you know, continent had warring. What are we going to do? They made armor. They start finding ways to kill people with armor. Well, if we get close to each other and we have these weapons, we're stabbing at each other and it's hitting the armor and it's getting weird. You know, what are we going to do? So they start developing ways to grab the armor and take each other down with the armor. And what they would do essentially is they would throw a guy 
And then they would, once the person was grounded and they were on top of them, draw their short blade and stab them between the plates of the armor or inside the soft spots in the armor. That was their main killing tactic with jujitsu. But there were also joint locks and things of that nature. Because why? Because in a suit of armor, I can't necessarily cut through, but I can definitely use your own mobility against you and break your arm. I could definitely use these weak points in the armor if I can get close enough for you to to you to do so. And that's how jujitsu was developed. It was developed for life and death, for fighting, for, you know, war. And then the Japanese government at some point in time said, you know what? We can't have all these civil wars. Basically, one guy united Japan and basically said, like, I'm not dealing with this shit again. So he cut him off. He was like, we're done with this shit. Like, there ain't going to be no more uprisings. There ain't going to be no more rebellions, right? Like, I just did all this. I'm done. And when he did that, the the noble families, which are the samurai families, they became politicians, essentially. He demilitarized them. He took away their ability to war. And when he did that, they were like, well, what do we do with all these families that have dedicated their lives to developing and teaching martial arts? Uh, and they go, well, we don't want anyone else learning this stuff because they're going to use it to kill people. So we need to stop this. And a lot of martial arts died. There were several little niche martial arts in Japan that died in that time because it was illegal. But a few of them made their way through. And those were the big three. Jiu-Jitsu, Aki-Jitsu, and Kinjitsu. Jiu-Jitsu being the grappling, uh, the throwing, and the things that we talked about already. Um, Aki-Jitsu being small joint manipulation uh, things of that nature. And then uh, Kinjitsu's what we know as kendo was the sword fighting aspect of uh, of what they did. So they turned those into sports, though. So now you have kendo, judo, and aikido, right? They turn them into martial arts. So they changed from um, an art to a way of life, essentially. Like, all right, well, the, we think that the way that these people live and this training is hugely beneficial to them socially and physically. So we're going to continue to do this. And the government was cool with it. Uh, judo even becoming the national sport. So judo now had the task of becoming this sport in this game where we're not killing people anymore and we're not maiming them anymore so what what do we do if it's not about breaking their arms or stabbing them um and we're not going to wear armor anymore because you know kind of not really allowed to do that shit so what do we, you know what are we going to do they just take the kimono and they say the goal is in in a fight to the death with all the things that we did in jujitsu, if your back hit the floor flat, you're dead. Your back hits the floor, he pulls a short knife, boom, stab, dead, gone. He's on to the next guy. That's it. So basically, if you get thrown flat, we're gonna call it good and say you lost this match, right? That's how they started to develop judo. And then, you know, of course, like over the years in judo, they're very elitist. So once Japan got notoriety for their sport of judo, people came to Japan to learn about judo wrestlers started showing up people of other grappling styles started showing up and every time japan saw them do something that they that was like efficient or effective against judo they either assimilated it and the other person agreed that the thing that they were doing is judo even though it probably wasn't or they banned it completely mm. so for instance the ijf the governing body of judo doesn't allow grabbing of the pants at all period because double legs are not judo so a wrestler shows up, double legs a bunch of judo guys, epons them, and then they go, you know what? This isn't judo. Fuck that guy. Ban that shit. We're done with that. And so uh, there are a lot of judo techniques that have been lost and a lot of submissions that were lost because grappling on the floor in judo was not a priority. It was all about the epon. That's the beautiful art of judo is the epon. So 
you had all these old school guys uh, in Japan whenever they were first developing the the major like schools of judo that were doing a lot of niwaza, a lot of groundwork, leg locks, arm locks, chokes. They were doing all that stuff. And then a lot of it just sort of went by the wayside. Uh, but in the time frame, uh, you know, 19 in the 1940s, when a lot of uh, Japanese were immigrating to Brazil after World War II, there were a lot of those guys that were still very old school minded in judo. They were still teaching a lot of the old school judo stuff that was kind of banned. And uh, a lot of the Brazilians got exposed to Newaza. Newaza heavy judo. And uh, they they loved it. They started like latching on to it, you know. And uh, since in judo being on the ground is such a small part of what's going on, the Brazilians were like, hey, let's spend all of our time on the ground. It seems like it makes more sense, you know. Like when we're fighting in the street, we're not allowed. We don't have clothes to grab on. Like can we move around the ground. If you look at the early geese that the Gracie used, a lot of short sleeves and things of that nature, uh, because it wasn't really about the kimono so much as it was about just finding the efficiency of actually fighting someone on the ground that doesn't know how to fight back on the ground. Like they discovered that feeling that we all had our first day of jujitsu. They discovered it like right away, you know, they were like, this is incredible. And so the Brazilians, you know, started calling it Brazilian jujitsu, which is what happens to martial arts. Just like Jigoro Kano called Jiu-Jitsu Judo. And the some of the old families maintained that what they did is not Judo. That's why there's still old school Japanese Jiu-Jitsu schools in the world. Um, the Brazilians called it Jiu-Jitsu and the Japanese were like, you know what? No, that's Judo. And they were like, it's not. It's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And they were like, then fight us. And the Brazilians, of course, were all about it. They fought them and won the majority of the matches that they took. And at that point in time, the Japanese were like offering, well, the Gracies were fighting the Japanese a lot. So the, they offered Elio Gracie a, a high ranking belt, like a, a red belt equivalent in judo and said, all right, but you have to call this judo. And he said, no, it's Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And that was the, the big feud between Japan and, and Brazil at that time over the martial art. Fast forward. The Brazilians proved to the world that Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the most dominant grappling art. When in, rea in reality, it's not the most dominant grappling art. It's the most dominant grappling philosophy. But they proved at that time that they were, had the most gra dominant grappling art, which is cool. So we got that. We move on. It comes to America because of economics, just simple economics. It was far more beneficial financially to come to America and teach jiu-jitsu than it was to stay in Brazil where people like the Gracies, they were not the only school of jiu-jitsu. There were schools of jiu-jitsu all over Brazil that had nothing to do with the Gracies. The Gracies just had the money to expose it to the world. The Gracies were in Rio with the nice school, the compound, all the geese, washer geese. They'll wash your geese for you, the whole nine. They're teaching lawyers and people with money. Did Chuck, Norris, did Chuck Norris help them come over? Absolutely not. So that's, a, that's my lineage. So this is my lineage. So... Uh, the Gracies came over to do this the UFC situation. They wanted to prove to the world. So Jorge and Gracie came over. You know they had Hoist. You know do do the thing. Uh, which is funny because in America we kind of look at that as the spawn of jujitsu, like the introduction of jujitsu, which is not true. Uh, Hicks and Gracie was going to Japan and dominating people for years before that in Valitudo fights. So the world knew what jujitsu was. 
long before America knew what jujitsu was. We're just the loudest kids on the block. So when we figured out what it was, we're like, hey, do you guys fucking know that there's this crazy shit on the ground, bro? Like we started blowing it up, right? Brazilians love that because they're like, sweet, now pay us. And we were like, yeah, no problem. You can live in America where you don't have to worry about getting mugged and shot every day when you walk outside and you'll make more money. How about that? They love it. So they come here. They start the whole Brazilian jiu-jitsu thing. And uh, the Gracies tried to come here and get here first. And they said wild shit like Brazilian jiu-jitsu is Gracie jiu-jitsu. Gracie jiu-jitsu is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. If it's not Gracie jiu-jitsu, then it's not Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They really sold the brand of Brazilian jiu-jitsu is Gracie jiu-jitsu because they knew it was only a matter of time before the rest of the world found out that they weren't the only Brazilians doing jiu-jitsu and that there were way better Brazilians, that there were Brazilian dudes that could fuck them up. So there was a guy named uh, Oswaldo Fada who was not of the Gracie lineage, and his teacher taught footlocks. And they were having matches in Brazil, and his students were footlocking the shit out of the Gracies. That's why Helio was like, well, footlocks aren't Gracie jiu-jitsu, which means it's not Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But they were repping heel hooks back then. There are videos of Helio Gracie doing heel hooks, right? So this is when we come to America. We start to get involved in all this. You know, Americans are starting to pick it up. Then you get the Machados. So the Machados are my lineage. Jean-Jacques and his four brothers... Their aunt married Carlos Gracie, Helio's brother. Helio didn't want to teach jiu-jitsu to anyone but the family. If people outside the family wanted to learn jiu-jitsu, they could only learn up to what we would consider a blue belt nowadays. Uh, Carlos didn't like that. Carlos thought jiu-jitsu had the power to change the world. So he was like, well, we're not going to do that. And so he started teaching the Machado brothers on his own, which was completely against uh, Elio and everything he wanted. And uh, Hegan and Jean-Jacques excelled so much that he had them training with Holes and Hickson, which Helio also hated. And uh, when they came to the U.S., when Hegan came to the U.S. to learn how to wrestle, he was like, brother, there's a huge opportunity for us. We should move all the brothers to the U.S. We can make so much money teaching jiu-jitsu. They don't know anything about jiu-jitsu. And when they came, Hori and Gracie was like, all right, you guys need to teach out of our garage and pay us a percentage of the privates because it's Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. They even called Hegan, Hegan Gracie for a while. And they were just really trying to lock that down. And so basically, Jean-Jacques and Hegan were like, uh, nah, we're going to kind of do our own shit. And then the, then Hori and them were like, well, then you're not a part of the family anymore. You're out of here. You're not. Do this isn't real Jiu-Jitsu. Really basically turned their backs on them. And they met Chuck Norris, and Chuck Norris blew them into the stratosphere. Chuck Norris was like, you know what, guys? Don't teach out of that garage. I'm going to set you up in my private movie studio. Like, I'm going to make it to where to get a black belt in my martial art, you have to be at least a blue belt in Machado Jiu-Jitsu. So Chuck Norris starts advertising it as Machado Jiu-Jitsu, which is just like a kick to the nuts for the Gracies. They're like, wait, what? And not only do they have this platform with Chuck Norris, they're flying all over the world teaching seminars. And the Gracies are like, why are we teaching out of a garage right now when the Machado brothers are out here traveling the world, hanging out with movie stars, you know? And there became this like sort of feud. Uh, so much so that uh, Carlos Jr., the guy that runs the IBJJF, great head of Gracie Baja, basically said John Jock was in like a real black belt. 
And uh, that went on for a while. Jean-Jacques didn't have a single stripe on his black belt until a handful of years ago when Hickson decided that Jean-Jacques should be ranked appropriately. And he was like, how long have you been a black belt? And Jean-Jacques like, I don't know, dude, 20-something years. <laughs> and Hickson was like, all right, man, well, you're probably a coral belt now. And like goes from black belt, no stripes, straight to coral belt. That's cool of Hickson, Hickson to do that, though, right? I guess. But Hickson and Jean-Jacques were always cool, right? Because... Carlos was bringing Jean-Jacques and them to train with Hickson. It was Hickson's dad that was against all of the sharing of jiu-jitsu and allowing other people to be a part of jiu-jitsu, right? And so that's how we got jiu-jitsu was because Carlos's lineage, which is essentially my lineage, Jean-Jacques, was all about sharing jiu-jitsu with the world. That's what Eddie's doing. Eddie wants to share jujitsu with the world. He gives everything that he works on for on his website right away, right there. He doesn't spare anything. He teaches seminars to everyone. Eddie's always told us that we should freely share our jujitsu because it's the only way for jujitsu to grow and evolve. If we all hoard it, not only will we be the only ones that know it, but when people figure out counters to it, like how will we deal with that? Because we just we've tried to hide everything the whole time. We there's the jujitsu can't grow. You see what I'm saying? The more hands on a on a job, the faster it gets done and the better it gets done in a lot of cases. That seems consistent with, and I don't want to make, you know, necessarily a political turn, but Eddie's approach to political type discussions is, you know, let's talk about it all, you know, free speech, things like that. So would you see a parallel between those two? Yeah, absolutely. Eddie, Eddie's thing is like, People want in jujitsu, sometimes the traditional guys, they want things to be a certain way without any cause or reason. They just say, you know what, like you have to train the gi to do jujitsu, which is stupid because the gi, like, jujitsu has never been exclusive to the kimono ever. Um, uh, then they say things like, well, you know, no gi is less technical or, you know, you have to do this or you have to do that. They just make all these stipulations so that you have to do essentially what they want to do or what they want you to do, as opposed to doing what's the best thing to do, right? And that's where Eddie was at. Eddie was like, why don't we just do what makes sense, man? Like, if you're not going to have a gi on an MMA, why would you train in the gi to get ready for an MMA fight? It's slower. It's fought from a completely different distance, and there are entire movesets that don't exist. Why would we do that? You know? It'd be like, uh, you know, training a bunch of, uh, you know, I don't know, in bowling for an MMA fight. Like, you don't bowl in an MMA fight. Why are you doing that? This entire movements you don't need. So that was Eddie's thought process. And this all comes down from Carlos. Carlos to Jean-Jacques, Jean-Jacques to Eddie. Right? And that's where I'm at with it too is let's expand jiu-jitsu. Let's grow it. Let's see the heights that we can bring it to. And it's that closed-mindedness that those early Brazilians had that kept jiu-jitsu from being what it is. They're, Gordon Ryan is the universe's answer to them trying to hide shit from people and be weird and not progress jiu-jitsu. You know what I mean? When you don't do that for a couple of decades, you get a guy like Gordon Ryan who basically figures it all out and then shows up and goes, oh yeah, you guys aren't actually good at this at all and then submits everyone. It's the natural balance of it. When in reality, if they if we had all been progressing together, Gordon wouldn't be as dominant as he is. And people still now, you'll hear people say it. It's wild. I've heard people in the last couple of years say things like, well, you know, Gordon's not really that good. It's just, you know, he's he's bigger than these guys or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, man, if you really do your research, you find out that that's almost always not true. He's actually a lot smaller than a lot of the guys he goes against. Um, For instance, tonight he has a match. He would have fought Vinny Magalesh, who's a 10th Planet guy, and Vinny would have outweighed him by 
10 or 15 pounds. And people probably would have still said the same thing, right? Uh, it, it, people aren't ready to hear that, that they don't, they, that jujitsu is behind and from a technical aspect. And so in the history of jujitsu, what we've seen is a repetition, as history always does, of this sentiment where someone finds a way to innovate it and then they go, all right, cool. I changed it. This is it. I have the best. The next generation will always be better than the previous generation. That's just how it works. It works like that in every sport that has room to grow. People like debates. They say things like, well, how do you think, uh, you know, how do you think a current like world champion boxer would do against like a guy like Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, the best guy in the world right now would trounce them. He would murder them because he grew up watching them. He knows their game in and out and he's already worked all the counters and all the new game that's been built off their game. When someone's dominant at something, everyone wants to emulate it and it pushes the entire sport forward. You think Tyson Fury would beat prime Tyson Fury would beat a prime Mike Tyson. If that's the same weight, if he's the best boxer in the world, right? He is the best heavyweight boxer in the world. Tyson if Fury he's the, is. If he's the best heavyweight boxer in the world, then I believe that. Okay. I think who's like, uh, like uh, for instance, like uh, in jujitsu, right? Like uh, you could take Hodger. You could say Hodger was the best guy of his generation or Marcelo or Andre Galvao. Andre Galvao is the best guy of his generation. What did Gordon just do to Andre Galvao? You know what I mean? Like, Andre didn't hit a single offensive movement in the entire match against Gordon. Why? Is it his age? I don't think so. Is it his... Is it, you know, the weight, the size? What is it? I don't think so. Gordon's technically better than him in so many different ways. I think that we watch good black belts lose to young guys in the sport all the time. And I don't think jujitsu is in a place where athleticism is the reason that they're losing sometimes maybe, but for the most part, it's generally because people are better, you know, like the sport is evolving and growing just like every sport evolves and grows. Every game that we play has a meta and that meta changes and grows. And if you're behind, you're behind. That's just simply how it works. Do you, so Gordon Ryan is the greatest jujitsu competitor of all time. That's not debatable, right? Gordon Ryan's the best jiu-jitsu competitor of our time. Of our time. Okay. Okay. Huh. Okay. Um, and Hodger's probably, I guess, if there were to be a list, maybe number two-ish. No, Hodger's the best of his time for sure, right? Okay. Difficult to Hodger, compare. Two different generations. Okay. Two different puzzles to solve. Oh, like, okay, MMA is a great example for this, right? Because MMA is a budding sport, right? Mm-hmm. So in a budding sport, we see massive, massive, massive leaps between the generations, right? Like it's, it's like, uh, you know, uh, Frank Yeager was an incredible champion, right? Mm-hmm. Let's see Frank Yeager versus Makachev. Mm. Prime Frankie Edgar, I think, gets submitted in round one against, against Makachev. Mm. Why? Yeah. Because the sport has grown. MMA Prime is Frank a great Edgar, example, yes. Yeah, prime Frank Yeager against Khabib. I think he gets submitted in round one. Like, why? Because the sport has grown, right? Like, uh, you know, look at Anderson Silva. Do you think Anderson Silva only loses fights now because of his age? Or do you think that the sport is better? Wow, that's an interesting one, actually. I think Anderson Silva is, you know, obviously he's older. You know, those those fights, man. I mean, Jesus, the toll it takes on the body. But when we saw Anderson start losing, 
I don't think he started losing because one day he woke up and he wasn't Anderson Silva anymore. Mm. He started losing because he had a dominant run for so many years that people were like, here's how you beat him. You know? who? What champion hasn't lost that way? GSP, maybe? He just got out at the right time. GSP was well on his way to start to take some L's. You know? That Johnny Hendricks fight was insane. Mm-hmm. You could argue that he lost that if you wanted to, you know? Um... What are some other great MMA champions that that we saw move move into the second generation and not be able to keep up anymore? Um, the heavyweight's an interesting one. Well, yeah, heavyweight's insane. I just think though, you know, sometimes I really think at heavyweight those guys take so much damage. You know, like look at Chuck Liddell. It's not even real heavyweight, light heavyweight. That mm-hmm. guy's brain is just mush. Man, man, you know, that's an extreme example. Yeah, of course, but you know what I'm, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's not uh, isolated. I think uh, uh, heavyweights, they get pretty fucked up. Look at someone like Verdum. How many times has he been knocked out? Brother, it's, and look at Travis Brown, right? Travis Brown was an incredible fighter, and then he got started, he got knocked out real bad like one time, Mm -hmm. and then it turned into this joke almost where it's like, just thump him on the chin, he'll go down, and he did. Last handful of fights Travis Brown had, dudes would just blow on his chin and he'd fold. And it's like, man, he's that's a, an example of someone who physically isn't able to keep up anymore. Whereas, take Chuck Liddell. Chuck Liddell in his prime. Chuck Liddell just knocked out Rashad Evans versus John Jones. Who wins that fight? That's easy. Mm-hmm. John Jones dominates him. Mm-hmm. Completely dominates him. Right? And then in your in then Tyson's age, people said Tyson's the greatest boxer of all time, brother. No yeah. doubt. But in Muhammad Ali's age, they said Muhammad Ali's the greatest boxer of all time. What about now? You know? Floyd Mayweather's the greatest boxer of all time. I mean, how do we really know? You know what I mean? Well, we know because whoever's the best right now is the best of all time. Undoubtedly. If you had to rank your favorite combat sports, how would that go? Um... I guess, like, uh, I mean, obviously I do jiu-jitsu. I love jiu-jitsu. Um, that's for sure my favorite one, like by far, just because, uh, it's literally my career and stuff. I spent so much time with it, but behind jujitsu, I mean, probably MMA dude, like that's gotta be like the stock answer. Like, because anyone can watch MMA, like, honestly, like if you, if you don't like MMA, like if you watch MMA and you go, this is boring, you probably just don't like combat sports at all. So jiu-jitsu first and then probably mma and then i don't know dude i have to study a shitload of different grappling so i have to watch judo and wrestling and all kinds of wild shit but i don't know that i enjoy those most of the time they get kind of boring what about like sambo sambo can be cool at times uh combat sambo is much more entertaining than standard sambo um but sambo is a very limited rule set man it's very weird sometimes. Wasn't uh, Khabib Combat Sambo champion of the world at one point? Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot. You know what? Like the thing about Sambo is it doesn't really. You don't really have to be that great of a grappler to win world titles in Sambo. The best grapplers in the world don't compete in Sambo. Mm. Sambo is a much better fighting art than it is a grappling art. Uh, you could take, for instance, in one. It seems really popular in one FC right now to create these jujitsu matches between high profile jujitsu guys and high profile Sambo guys. And I think we've just been watching all of these Sambo guys get completely murdered by these jujitsu guys for like the last two years. 
uh Rotolo has I think w- each one of the Rotolos has beaten one. Daniel Kelly just beat one. Uh and I think they're slated to Mikey Musumeci's slated to fight one as well coming up. Um that they're all Sambo world champions or what have you. Could you make a case that combat sambo is the best way to prepare someone for an MMA career? I actually believe that. I actually do believe that. I think that's a very unpopular opinion though. There's just not the focus on combat sambo uh, internationally, really. It's, we don't have a, a, a large enough sample size for it to be the conventional wisdom yet. Yeah, I just think that, uh, yeah, that's the thing. In the U.S., sambo is so small. People just don't really care. I think that, um, again, like what we talked about earlier, the world knew about jiu-jitsu. We just didn't know about jiu-jitsu. When we found out about jiu-jitsu, we were like, guys, come check this out. The Americans are just now kind of figuring out about combat sambo. If we if 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 America latches on to combat sambo, I'm telling you, the next like big thing, people are gonna be like, brother, you gotta try this sambo stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, but there'd have to be some institutional type, you know, uh, uh folk style wrestling in the United States, for example, is like so prevalent that I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how a movement like that would catch on. It's not as sellable as jujitsu. You don't have the CPA. You don't have the, um, you know what I mean? You don't have the attorney who's wanting to go in and do combat sambo. So the, the, ju- the jujitsu market, I think, is just more uh, uh, sellable. Oh, I absolutely agree. But here's the thing. When we start talking MMA, right now, People are being told that they need to wrestle and do jiu-jitsu and do all these things if they want to be MMA fighters. There are kids in MMA gyms across the country who are wrestling in, in middle school and high school. They're doing jiu-jitsu and kickboxing after school when they, they get home, you know, whatever. And they're preparing for a college run of wrestling that leads into an MMA run as a career. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it, that's, that's their life path, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple in my gym right now that are trying to do that. And I think that once they realize that combat sambo is a much more inclusive way to train that stuff than to go to all these individual people that that are going to teach you things that you probably don't need, honestly. Mm. Um, think about an MMA gym where you sign up mm-hmm. and they have you boxing with people that want to be professional boxers and yeah. doing Muay Thai with people that want to be professional Muay Thai fighters and doing jiu-jitsu in the key. Mm-hmm. Think about how much time you've wasted. Sure. A ton, sure. a ton, because the jujitsu guys in the gi are teaching you things that just don't matter at all. You are learning all kinds of footwork stuff at the boxing class that just isn't ever going to benefit you. Mm-hmm. And the Muay Thai guys are teaching you a bunch of really good ways to get taken down. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like, you know, and you're learning a handful of good things. Probably one out of 10 things you learn from each one of them is actually something that's going to work out for you well in MMA. And then you've got and, someone like Khabib who is focused on specific relatively simple takedowns, but always accounting for the strikes. And he's been doing that for however many years. And that's just going to be a leg up. And it obviously is. Philosophically, though, you're learning to separate them. And this is something that happens all the time. I just had a conversation with one of our fighters like two days ago about this, which is why it's fresh on my mind. He said, I have a block man when I'm out there and I'm fighting. He's an amateur. He's had a handful of amateur fights. I have this block in my head, man. I get out there and I'm trying to remember when to like turn on like certain things. He's like, so I'm kickboxing with the guy and I'm watching my footwork and my angles and the reads. And then I'm like, you know, I hear my, my coach says, all right, you got to look for the takedown. And he's like, and I'm trying to remember like how to switch to wrestling and like, 
do that. And he's like, and then I hit the ground and I'm having a trouble like, like figuring out when I should be wrestling on the ground and when I should be doing jujitsu on the ground and blah, 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 blah. The advantage that combat sambas have over people that train the American way to train MMA, really the, honestly, like everyone except the Russians way of training MMA is that there's no difference. They're just fighting. Like all of their dilemmas that they build in their game to present to their opponent during a fight are built around one style of fighting. There's no switching in their mind at all. It's all right. When he throws the cross here, I parry when I parry and I see his elbow drop, I go with the right hand. When I parry and I see him pivot, I collect his legs for a takedown. There's no like, I don't know if I should wrestle. I don't know if I should kickbox. It's just one fighting style. Mm -hmm. You find that in jujitsu with people. Well, I had to remember that we were doing leg locks or when should I go for the leg lock? Mm -hmm. Like it's a separate thing. It's not. It's all one thing. Like if you're not thinking about attacking the legs and manipulating the legs while you're passing the guard, then your guard passing isn't going to be good. If you're not thinking about attacking the legs and using them to off-balance your opponent to sweep them and gain position in jiu-jitsu, then your guard's going to suck. Like, 100%. That's real. When guys come through the gym that train mostly in the gi and they come through and they want to roll, it's not the leg locks that they're like, wow, they expect to get leg locked because they're coming to a no-gi school and they think, oh, everybody does leg locks. It's the way they get their guard passed or it's the way they get swept or it's the way that they lose position that throws them for a loop. They're like, wait. I didn't expect to get my guard passed. I'm like, yeah, you know when you sucked your legs up to your chest real tight and curled up in a ball so you wouldn't get leg locked and he just walked around behind you and took your back? Well, yeah. Think about if you did that when leg locks weren't there. You know what I'm saying? So they're presenting dilemmas to their opponent that involve an entire fighting style, not just one fighting style. Like it's an entire world of fighting. And I think that's one of the advantages they have. It's not that we can't do that. It's just that coaches aren't telling their athletes that. They're just going, well, you'll have to talk to the wrestling coach about that. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. No, it's a very has fascinating be, conversation, really. I mean, they has to be cohesive. Yeah, you almost you need to figure out from day one. I know that sounds um, silly, but if you're going to be an MMA fighter, what you described is you're going to wrestle through high school, wrestle through college, sprinkle in some boxing and then work on combining them all at some point, you know, or whatever. Um, but ultimately, if you want to compete in jujitsu, obviously, no gi jujitsu, you should be training no gi jujitsu and maximizing that as much as you can. If you're going to be fighting MMA, you should be accounting for it all a as often a as you possibly can. The name mixed martial arts implies a certain level of cohesion. As a principle, that cohesion has to exist. That principle being something that's constant any time that you're practicing this thing. So cohesion, if it's, it's funny that we call it mixed martial arts and people just aren't mixing it at all. It's literally just, you could just call it multiple martial arts, honestly, because it's like, you're just not, you know what I mean? Cohesion is the most important mental principle we have in mixed martial arts and in jujitsu, but really in, in MMA. We just got to bring that to jujitsu. Got to bring wrestling and judo and sambo principles to jujitsu, implement them and not treat them as these weird side branches of jujitsu and just say it is just actual jujitsu because jujitsu is a philosophy. It's not a collection of moves. So many different directions a martial arts conversation can go. It's really uh, cool as shit, to be honest. Um, you, of course, have your upcoming seminar January Saturday, January 7th here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, how do you decide 
what you are going to teach in a seminar. I've always wondered about that. That's a, a interesting thing to think about. Is what 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 motivates that? Um, generally, what I like to do is just ask the school owner what they uh what do they want. You know, like what do you want? Do you want uh you know leg locks or anything specific? You know, um, generally I get asked to teach whatever is popular in the meta. In, in like professional jiu-jitsu, they'll be like, oh, can you show these wrestle-up techniques or whatever the people are seeing on videos? And so, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll teach whatever they want. and But it will always fall back on a solid like format for the seminar. Like I have a format. I like to present a principle at the beginning. I like to flesh out concepts that are built off of that principle and then ultimately find a set of applications being techniques that form a cohesive sort of flow through that principle and those set that set of concepts. I spoke with AJ Jenkins earlier today. He wanted me to ask who will you be bringing with you to the seminar? Um, so that weekend we're doing a tournament in Louisville. It's a new way BJJ fanatics. It's like a three V three deal on Sunday. Um, and they told us we could put as many three man teams as we want. And so I told everyone, hey, this is the first tournament of the year. Why don't we all go up to Louisville and get an Airbnb, a big Airbnb, and just hang out for a couple of days, do this tournament together. She has the first tournament of the year, kind of like a kickoff. And we'll just go into 2023, like, on a high note, you know? And they are like, cool, no problem. So I think I have, like, maybe five or six three-man teams. So 15, you know, 18 people. Uh, my senior students will be there, Ryan Aiken, who's the current 185 combat jiu-jitsu world champion uh he just won the subversive cjj uh event two weeks ago i think he beat uh some guys from b team he beat a couple ufc guys uh pretty interesting guy he's really good one of the best grapplers in the world like hands down beating some of the biggest names in the sport wow that'd be uh, someone interesting to have a conversation about samba with yeah ryan yeah for sure ryan's an incredible uh, grappler. Uh, he has won CJJ Worlds and won subversive CJJ without throwing a single strike. Uh, submitted all of his opponents without throwing a single strike. Wow. But 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 obviously, I mean, that's cool though, right? I mean, that's an art. That's fucking accounting for it. Yeah, we... Uh, our big goal with that was to prove that the jujitsu that we're developing uh, works, whether you can hit us or not. And uh, that we would not only not take significant damage, but actually dominate and win all the exchanges, which Ryan has proven multiple times now. So, um, yeah, Ryan is doing really well for himself. He's also won a ton of other things. Like he's a, a champion in like almost all the minor pro shows, uh, the submission only series, Sabatero, like so many big ones. But he, you know, uh, anyway, Ryan will be with me. Uh, Chase Hanna, who is also one of my... Uh, my senior students, Chase Hanna, took second at the BJJ Fanatics Invitational, which had huge names, Giancarlo Bodoni, Kyle Bame, all these big-name guys, Pedro Mourinho. Um, he's got wins over some of the best dudes in the sport as well. Uh, he's been on EBI and things like that. He'll he'll be with me. Uh, Josh Elverton, who also is very similar to them, has those same accolades. Um and then so many of my lower belt guys that are coming up right now. Uh, Kevin Beering, who's been just winning everything that they can put him in right now. It's crazy because he's a blue belt, but he's dominating brown and black belts left and right. 
winning all these professional shows. Um, uh, Luke Stevens, Stephen Dana, uh, man, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on of the guys that are going to be there. So, uh, you know, I'm bringing a lot of my competitive guys, probably 15 to 20 of my highly competitive guys will be there with me. I know you've spent uh, many you know, uh, uh, days in Louisville over the years, right? I mean, you've, you've been to 10th planet Louisville, but I know you, you also know like Chewy, you're, you're very familiar with Louisville. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So of course, anyone listening, if you're interested, what would you say about someone who normally trains in the Gi attending one of your seminars? I think it, I think if you train in the Gi normally and you want to come to the seminar, I think, uh, it's great. I think like you're going to probably learn right away like it starts with a principle so it's not going to be disconnected it's not going to be weird it's going to be like all right great we're working guard passing so let's talk about weight distribution first you know like things that are going to help you in the gi as well as no gi but uh it will be very different it will be highly technical uh compared to a lot of no gi that you've probably done if you only train in the gi Great stuff. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you joining me for the episode today. Uh, before we wrap things up, if someone's interested in learning more about you, I don't know, do you have any social media plugs, anything like that you like to mention outside of, of course, uh, promoting the upcoming seminar, which is Saturday, January 7th uh, from noon until 3 o'clock p.m. Yeah, so, yeah, if you guys are interested in more uh, stuff, I have social media on basically all of the major platforms so i'm on facebook probably better to follow my athletes page on facebook uh i don't think i can accept friend requests any longer on facebook um they they limit you to only so many friends on facebook so um just follow my page you can look it up it's sean applegate um, that's probably the best way on facebook instagram is trapplegate 10p uh i'm always posting different things there like updates and things like that on youtube uh 10patl has a page i have coaching videos on there for those of you guys that are interested in becoming better coaches uh just just information that can help you like you know conceptually and then um yeah i think that those are the big ones right facebook instagram we have a youtube so if you guys are interested just check that out if you're ever in atlanta we have an open door policy you want to come by and train 10 planet atlanta it's in uh, kennesaw what does that mean open door policy it just means like we don't have any politics there in regards to like if you're from other gyms, you can come to any class you want and train. You can you can come and roll with whoever you want. And, you know, you have to take the class. Obviously, you can't just come in at, at rolling. And, you know, that's weird. I don't know if anyone does that. But um, open door policy, meaning like you're a Gracie Baja guy. Cool. Like your, your coach hates Eddie Bravo. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like we don't have politics there. We train six days a week we have guys competing at the highest level of the sport there's no room for closed doors and closed minds we just we want to meet everybody and train with everybody everybody's welcome i love it well great stuff uh sean applegate really appreciate your time thank you very much yeah brother thank you i want to thank everyone for tuning in of course we will have another episode of the kelly patrick show out soon 